All right, let's get started here. This is our daylight saving time class. Yes, we'll have to work on projecting so you can be heard by the rest of the class. Eventually, we could have our own classroom when we get a few more of those built. Uh, it might not feel so spread out. Colossians chapter 3. Pressing on in our study of the one another commands that unfold in Scripture. Ultimately, unfolding what it means to love one another. And yet, as we love one another, the Bible is good to instruct us on what that actually means. What does this love look like? So in Colossians 3, we have an example of what loving one another would look like when it tells us that we are to be bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So this is parallel passage to the Ephesians text that we've looked at. Uh, there are several portions of Colossians that seem to be themes that Paul wanted multiple churches to hear. And so there's clearly some similarities. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Again, we're jumping into the middle of a thought with some participles. So, what do we look back and find as our main verb that unfolds in these actions of bearing with one another and forgiving each other if necessary? What's the, what's the verb that we're building on? What do you see there? Yeah, it's that it's just the previous verse there. So putting on, and we have kind of a list, and so the wording can it can be like, well, was he looking for just one word? Uh, no, it's really just that whole idea in verse twelve. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience. By doing that, here's what it will look like when you have. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, you'll be bearing with one another. And this bearing with uh, has that idea of to endure, to be patient. We might say even to put up with. Uh, maybe that doesn't sound patient in your mind. Maybe it sounds aggravated, but tolerant. In a sense, that's okay, because there's clearly times when there, there is a bother. There is an annoyance, and yet... You, you can endure, you can be patient, you can make it uh, because you're willing to say, I'm loving, I've put on a compassionate heart, I've put on kindness and humility and meekness. Okay, so the person has some quirks about them. Bear with one another. Uh, and then there's another description of what it looks like to put on all those things. Not only do you put up with one another, he says, and... You forgive each other. So you're bearing with one another and forgiving one another. It's just that that forgiving part has this little extra explanation. If you have a complaint against another. 
So, you know, that's a big if, right? We really don't have complaints against anybody. Uh, probably just put in there since, uh, since you have a complaint against another, uh, be forgiving. Uh, so the big if, uh, you, you can fill in the blanks with, okay, who do you have a complaint against or an offense? Um, not, not in a huge way. The, it's just, the language is just to find fault with it. It'd be almost like uh, grabbing a shirt off the rack at Kohl's and holding it up, and you're like, oh, there's a little thread, and you realize, oh, it's not loose. Eh, I'm not going to get that one, see if they have my size. There's one. It has, doesn't have a fault, a little little blemish somewhere. It's not like a major catastrophic problem. It's just a fault, a complaint, uh, a little problem. Uh, If one has that kind of issue against another, what do you do with it? Well, you forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. We talked about this before in Ephesians. There are times you you don't have to say anything. You just let it go. It's just not a big deal. Um, there are other times, for the sake of relational togetherness, go ahead and bring it up, but, but not because you're all angry and bent out of shape about it, but just, you just share and say, hey, this, you know, this, I noticed this, uh, you know, it'd be nice if we could work out a solution, uh, and you just address it because the text here isn't saying don't talk about it, uh, it's just saying if there's a complaint, it should end in forgiving. Um, So you let it go. Remember, that's one of the meanings of forgive, to release. Either because you're not going to make an issue of it, or if you think it's a significant enough complaint, then address it, but ready to release it. Um, Don't don't make a fight out of something. Uh, That's not what the, the text is calling us to do. It's calling us to quickly get to the release of the offense. Um, So we have this forgiving spirit if there is a complaint against another. Uh, Chances are, or providence will be, that in this coming week you will have a complaint against someone. Um, that, That just seems to go without saying, and yet here's the one another instruction from the Bible telling us, yes, if that happens, Here's your attitude towards it. Um, remember, you've put on, and even putting on is, is kind of sectioned off as, remember who you are, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So you're chosen by God, you're loved by God, you belong, you're the beloved, and you're also being made holy. God's doing a work in your life. So whatever happens this week fits under those descriptions. God loves you and is bringing you to holiness through whatever he's ordained in your life. That being true, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. So with all of that, it it makes sense that we would put up with somebody's faults and be forgiving of them when we're aware of what God has already done for us and then The verse ends that way, as the Lord has forgiven you, and we studied that in Ephesians. There's our standard. There's the benchmark. Uh, The Lord's forgiveness must define how we forgive others. And then, of course, verse 14 kind of puts a bow on it. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
Of course, that, that's where the one another's flow from, love. So, of course, put on love. But sometimes when we hear love one another, we're not thinking, oh, yes, that means put up with their faults and be forgiving of them. Uh, and that's what this text is driving home. Any thoughts there with bearing with one another, forgiving each other? I'm going to name names. Who you put up with? I mean, so we can pray for you and that person. Uh, all right. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here we have teaching and admonishing one another. Again, much like Ephesians 5. Um, again, participles, teaching and admonishing. What do they flow from? So look back. What do they flow from? Daniel gave us the first one, so someone else has to come up with our, our key verb here. Yeah, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, to dwell is that idea of set up your house. If you've ever framed in a house, that's what's going on here. If you've ever pitched a tent in a small scale, that's what the word would mean here. It's basically let truth kind of just take up residence right there in your head. Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly or fully, and out of that will come teaching one another and admonishing one another. Teaching is just teach, admonish is that counseling kind of term. Uh, Neuthetic counseling is from this Greek word, neutheteo. So neuthetic simply kind of is the English way of writing the Greek word. But more helpful is what it means. It means to put, and it means the mind. So put into the mind of someone that truth that is dwelling in you. So let the word of Christ dwell in you so that you can put it in someone else's mind. When your friend is grieving in a time of sorrow, you put truth into their mind. When they need comfort, you put truth into their mind. When, when your buddy lost his job and is discouraged because he's having a hard time finding work, you put truth into his mind. Uh, you admonish one another. It's, not a, it's just not a word that has a lot of implications of I know better or I've arrived so I'll teach you. Um, I'm the guru, you're the needy one. It's just not there. It, it's just literally put into their mind. Um, when we use that for counseling, we often think, oh, the counselor knows everything. I know nothing. No, that's not how it works. It's, it's just the reality of the struggles in our spiritual walk where Galatians 1 says there are times when you're going to be overtaken in a fault. Sometimes that fault is fear and wrong thinking. Sometimes it's you've given in to temptation. Sometimes you're just battling it, but there's that, there's that struggle, and it says the spiritual ones are supposed to be helping you in that moment. They're supposed to be putting truth into your head that steers you to repentance or steers you to stronger faith. So it's not an elite crowd that knows and kind of the, you know, remedial Christians who don't really get it. No, it's just in any given moment of any given day, 
When I struggle, someone speaks truth to me. If they're struggling, I speak truth to them. We're all leaning on the main verb of the verse, let the word dwell in you richly so that you can be the one who's speaking truth. And quite frankly, sometimes there aren't people around us speaking truth, and we're still supposed to have the word dwelling in us, so in a sense, we could speak truth to ourselves. Um, But as much as we should do that, we just remember God's design is, yes, that we could lean on truth, but when we're struggling, we're supposed to be surrounded by a body of Christians doing the one another's, which include speaking truth. So put into the mind, we admonish. Parents hear that in Ephesians 6, where you're to bring your children up in the nurture of the Lord and the admonishment of the Lord, meaning you show them the love of God and you put the truth of God in their heads. Um, And with that demonstration of relational love, the nurturing, and with the teaching of truth, you've done all that you can do. You can't make them love God. You can't make them love church. You can't make them love you. Um, But you can give them truth, and you can show them love, and God works his will through that means, uh, namely you as a parent. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That becomes then the foundation to being successful at admonishing this week. So we could say, I want to do this one another. I want to be someone who speaks truth. Well, then you're going to have to know what the truth is. Um, So figure that out. Use this Lord's Day to figure out what kind of truth am I going to kind of immerse myself in this week so that I will be ready to teach and admonish. Again, even the teaching word, though it's often formal in Scripture, and, you know, Paul went everywhere teaching. Oh, well, he was an apostle. Teach must be the gift of teaching. Uh, it can be, uh, but here in the text, it's, it's somewhat indefinite. It seems to be that to one another we teach. And again, not because you might be a gifted teacher, but because you know something that's true and you communicate it to someone else. Teaching seems to be amplified in admonishing. You could teach one lesson. Admonishing seems to point us to you, you got to drill it into the mind. You got to think this. It's the old adage, you know, repetition is the key to learning. Um, was for me. I, I don't need a jingle. Uh, I don't need a song to sing. It was just get, get through it a bunch of times and eventually it'll stick. Uh, other people learn differently, you know. My wife can sing, can sing those presidents all the way through. Well, guess what? I never memorized a list of presidents by just looking over them again and again and again. Um, my wife, though, if I need to know who was the 12th president, honey, sing that song real quick. You know, I need to guy a couple before Lincoln, you know. Uh, well, repetition, get into the word and see it again and again. See who God is again and again, and eventually you won't have any trouble teaching or admonishing somebody regarding who God is. Uh, so get in the word this week. All right, any thoughts on Colossians 3.16? Yeah. I was going to say that I think it's interesting that in verse 16, that let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, that that can't happen unless you're in the word, but also that the activity is being done to you rather than something that we're achieving ourselves. So like that word let becomes really important with that sort of um, 
It's not passive. It's like an active yielding where you're intentionally yielding to the power and authority of God's word. But I think it also just shouts out that God's word is living and powerful. And if you're dwelling in it, there's another step there, which is, are you yielding to, submitting to, and allowing or letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Um, it's not just having your face in the word, much like the Pharisees searching the scriptures, thinking that you know they would find life in them, but it's actually they which tell of Christ. There's another layer of knowing and walking with God. Yeah, a couple thoughts. One, it's interesting uh, to think on Paul's first thought about a command of let this happen, basically. It, it, it is a question that we talk about in, in a passive verb command, like when you're not called to actually do something, but to let something. Um, but Paul phrased it well with an active yielding or an active surrender. In a, it, it's, it's the idea that, yes, it's pointing to God's grace through the word. It is living and powerful, and, and yet we are commanded to do something to, to let that influence us. Um, so when you see that language of let, and it's clearly a command, then just recognize, yeah, it's kind of a nuanced aspect of our sanctification where God's doing something, but he calls us to, to do something, to, to, to be influenced. Um, it, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, language that comes to us through the Bible. And then to think of the let it dwell, something else Paul said there uh, made me think, this is why at times we would say it's not as important that you read massive volumes. Like if your Bible reading had you reading Colossians 2, 3, and 4 on one day, well, that could be good. You're going to see some big ideas, but maybe, maybe at times you read a verse like this and you're like, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. I just need to think on that and see you know, how the Lord might help me live that out. And you might just spend the whole day thinking, what does that look like to have the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Um, and, and maybe it means, you know, I'm going to use my drive time in the car to listen to a, a podcast or listen to the scripture read or hear someone on the radio preach a sermon. And you, you just think, man, maybe if I just had a little bit more word influence throughout the day, I'd, I'd have those reminders of what the word's calling me to be today. So, Take heart and just realize God, God wants his word renewing your mind, changing the way you think so that you don't think like the world, but you're thinking like he thinks. Um, so if that takes a couple of verses or a paragraph, great, read that and, and just mull through it. I know sometimes we can maybe get bogged down with participles and what they describe, but in your Bible, you know, you can be thinking back to like, okay, how does this whole sentence go together? Or... You know, just think of basic English, like what is the main action verb in this paragraph? What is he driving at with all this descriptive language? Things like that can feel technical, but they're really, they're, they're letting the word take root because now you know what meaning is going on there, the, the use of heavy action kind of words and such. All right, uh, John? Another word that Paul used was allow. And, and so that sense of let meaning to allow or permit, so it's, uh, that's more of a conscious reflection 
than uh, what you've heard, and then allowing it. And then that took me back to the parable of the sower, to be good ground, you know, to hear, and then to receive, and then to let it bear fruit. Right. Yes. Yeah, if you're going to let somebody dwell in your house, you know, your in-laws show up or something from out of town, you'd grab their suitcase and you'd show them to the guest room and say, hey, you guys can stay here. You'd kind of let them do, but you're, you're kind of receiving still. It's that, that idea of yielding or allowing. So, yeah, give thought to that. Uh, David? I thought it was interesting at the end of the verse. So he talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing, singing, and then the mindset behind all of it is with thankfulness in your hearts to God as kind of, in a sense, what drives all of it, um, being my thankfulness to God for what he has done, his using the word in me to dwell in me and using these songs and hymns that I can use with others. There's just so much thankfulness that is in my heart going into teaching and admonishing somebody else. Right, and if you go back to Ephesians 5, you'll see that that theme of thankfulness there. It's in the following verse as well, verse 17. Um, Again, a a simple paragraph here in Colossians would give you plenty of source material to be able to say, I want want to let the word of Christ dwell in me uh, today, this week. Uh, so if you're not reading anywhere else, take up Colossians and, and see how the Lord uses it in your life. Uh, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. As we plow through these one another's, we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 9. We started a new paragraph here. Now, concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So concerning brotherly love, or to love one another. What, what do you think this means when Paul says, you have no need for someone to write to you, you have been taught by God? Any thoughts there? Well, that's, that's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, you know, silently working in our hearts. Right. In a theological context, we'd be thinking, well, you know, can we say we're taught by God like he gives us some new teaching? And we would say, no, we, he's spoken by his spirit through the word. So even as Paul writes this, it, it seems he is referencing Uh, the Holy Spirit. If we look back in the opening paragraph, though it's a different topic, clearly set apart in verse 9 by this phrase, now concerning this. Uh, He does this in Corinthians with all the different problems in the Corinthian church. You see the same phrase over and over. Okay, now concerning lawsuits, now concerning that immoral brother in the church, now concerning, and he's addressing a new topic. Yet, Though it's a new topic, he, he's already told us in verse 3 about the will of God and our sanctification. And he's told us that we're called to holiness in verse 7. Uh, and so then he says, don't disregard what God has said, verse 8, because if you do, 
You're not disregarding man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So if we we're trying to figure out what does that mean? Why is Paul writing to them if he's saying there's no need for someone to write to you? You've been taught by God. I think we're wise to start with the context here and see that this journey to holiness and sanctification, and we could add to loving one another, uh, needs to be pursued because God has called us to it. And if we disregard this plan, we're not disregarding the teaching of a pastor or teaching of Paul. We're disregarding God who gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could do this. That's why we have the Spirit. So he would produce the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which in part is this element of love. So don't be confused by the language. Um, If anything, when you dive into the language here, it's a lesson in and of itself. Um, this expression taught by God is used only here uh, in all the New Testament. Uh, It's actually just one word, God taught, um, which one word in all the New Testament, and it's kind of odd combining those words. They're just not combined that way elsewhere. It makes us think that as Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, is writing this, he was looking for just some way to summarize this, and he just calls it God taught. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, do, does the way I live reflect this descriptive? Am I God taught? Uh, why do I do what I do? Is it because ultimately I point back to I'm God taught. God taught me by the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, we can't go around saying, you know, the Holy Spirit told me this today. And, you know, well... If the Holy Spirit told you that through the Word, sure, let's, let's have it. Um, but there's no new revelation that's going to come to you. But building on Colossians 3, the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly, it should be evident then that to others that we are God-taught. When we speak to someone's need, their burden, their struggle, uh, and seek to encourage, comfort, exhort, admonish, it should be evident that we're God-taught people. Um, And that's Paul's point here. Now, concerning brotherly love, you're God taught to love one another. And then he goes on to say, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So Paul's command here is unique because he's commanding brotherly love in a sense. He's at least commending it, but he's saying you're actually doing a good job of this, but because God's your teacher on this, keep learning a lesson from him. Keep looking at his love for you and seeing you can always do more. You're never going to reach that point where you say, well, I, I finally did it. I love his Good as God does, so I'm done. No, he's saying you're doing a great job. But as you are God taught, if he's your teacher, you're going to keep doing more and more. And that's the urgency here. That's that's what he's both commending and in a sense commanding. Do it more and more. Uh, You know, the God taught could be the literal going back to John 13, 34. 
this command, and I did teach to love only them. So now the people in Thessalonica haven't heard of Christ, you know, hear the command from him directly. And Paul didn't hear it directly. Right. Sure. Building on John 13, the new command I give to you, that you love one another. Uh, so are you God-taught? And really the verb is, is present tense, so are you being God-taught? Um, it's not even you went to school once and got a degree. It's, no, you're still in school. You're still being taught. Um, and if that's the case, then this loving one another seems to go hand in hand. Brotherly love fits with those who are students of God's love for them. Um, so build on the positive momentum because this is a bright spot. This isn't, uh, hey, you guys need to pick it up here a little bit. Where's, where's the patience with one another? Where's the forgiving? Uh, Paul's actually saying, I see a lot of this happening. I've seen what you've done for the brothers in Macedonia. Uh, I'm just urging you to do this more and more. Just keep doing that. And it's unique that this, this one another instruction, which starts in-house, that we uh, love one another and the brothers, it, it kind of naturally bleeds into our relationships with those outside the church. Um, so do this more and more, then verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So it just naturally bleeds into our standing with others, our reputation in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Um, we're not busybodies. We're not lazy people. Um, but instead, there's a quiet life, which isn't like you're not loud and disrupt your neighbors as much as it is there's a peace you know, your, your neighbors just kind of are glad you're there because you're not always storming around and ranting and raving at them or family. Uh, mind your own affairs. Again, that's not isolationism. Um, it's just the recognition of we do what we do. I don't have to judge everyone else. I don't have to weigh in on everyone else. Uh, to work with your hands. There's a diligence there that is unfolds in Proverbs uh, and this is what Paul calls walking properly before outsiders. Um, so, God taught leads to brotherly love. Uh, think of the people that you struggle to love as brothers and sisters in Christ even. Uh, there are church people that you find hard to love. Uh, other Christians in other churches you know and you, maybe you work with some and you think, oh, I'm just not my type of person or personality. It just it kind of grates on me at times. We have those people, and yet the Bible says, remember, God will teach you how to love. So, so stop thinking it can't happen. Um, if you're in the school of God, then brotherly love will continue more and more. All right, First Thessalonians 4, verse 18, we read, therefore, encourage one another with these words. If ever you should feel like you're jumping into an argument, it's when you read the first word as therefore, right? Uh, 
you just know you've come a little late. You've, you should not be starting right here. Um, can somebody tell me the context of this therefore? What, what, what's, what's the summary of what comes before? Yeah, the return of Christ, uh, the coming of the Lord. He began in verse 13 basically saying, listen, I, I don't want you to be ignorant the old translation, or uninformed, it says here, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, obviously, Christian people, people in the church were dying. Uh, This is the nature of a sin-cursed world. Even though we put faith in Christ, it does not mean we will have permanent physical life on this earth. Um, There friends and family members have died, and yet he says, I want you to be informed about something so that when you grieve, and you will. He's not saying Christians don't grieve. We don't have any sorrow because we know what's going to happen. No, of course we have sorrow, but it's tempered differently than the sorrow of those who don't have this hope that he's going to unfold. Then he unfolds that hope that Jesus will come again, and he'll raise those who have died, and those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, Jesus, when he was on earth, and John spoke of a day, a day that was coming, actually an hour even. Uh, In other words, he was narrowing it down to a point in time And he says, in that hour, the graves will be opened and all will be raised. Those who are of faith will be raised to everlasting life, and those who are not will be raised to everlasting condemnation. Um, And he says, that hour is coming. So Jesus doesn't speak of multiple comings. Jesus himself, at least, doesn't speak of what we would call a rapture, where only believers are dealt with. Jesus spoke of a day and an hour when all of this end of humanity happens at once. He would come back to that topic in Matthew, and he would describe it as a judgment of sheep and goats. And he would say the sheep will be separated from goats, the the clean from the unclean, so to speak, the believers from the believers. And he gives a unique description of how that judgment will unfold. And it comes to us in the language of works. Um, Not because you pile up enough good works and you're saved, but because clearly those who are saved are his workmanship created for good works. And so the good works are simply that evidence of the faith that was there. So Jesus says things like, When I was in prison, you came to visit me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And they respond like, well, we never visited you in prison. We never clothed you, fed you, gave you drink. And Jesus' point is, no, but you did that to someone. Those works were happening. And if you did it to the least of the brothers, you did it to me. And he he takes that whole big picture and he says, that's That's the Christian life. That's what true faith produces, the love of God on display. So when you did that, you were showing your faith. Um, And so enter into the joy of heaven. And then he'll say to others, you didn't do those things. And they respond, we never had the opportunity. What do you mean we never did that? 
insomuch as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Because there was no heart for me. There was no faith. So they are the goats. They're separated that way. All that to say, Jesus' point, and it seems to be Paul's point here, is that there is a point in time coming when Jesus comes back and life as we know it on this earth as humanity uh, is coming to a conclusion. And if we are those who have faith in Jesus, Paul writes, therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's not, oh, panic. It's not stockpile supplies. It's not anything other than hope is where the paragraph began in verse 13. Encourage is where it ends in verse 18. And this word encourage is the, the word parakaleo. It's the same word for the Holy Spirit when Jesus says in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving, but I'm sending another. This one is leaving, but the same kind is coming back. And that comforter that is coming, that encourager is this noun form, paraclete, we call it in, as a noun. Uh, so when you hear the Holy Spirit is promised, he's this one who's going to come alongside and speak. That's what para kaleo means. Kaleo is to call out. Para means alongside. So this word means broad things in the New Testament. To the one who needs encouragement, then it's translated encouragement. So if you're discouraged, para kaleo means to encourage. If you're sorrowful, at times our Bible will use the word comfort, and it's the word parakaleo. You come alongside and you're, you're saying something. You could be hustling and doing a great job, but maybe getting a little tired, and the idea of coaching comes to mind. The guy on the sideline calling out, keep doing this, or oh, there's a weak spot, fix this, cover there. So all that coaching going on, it becomes very much a, an exhortation to the ones who are kind of in the arena. In John, he'll use it as the word advocate in a legal context. It's a lawyer, someone who comes alongside and speaks for. So calling out alongside, speaking alongside, this word has a lot of meanings. And here it's come alongside the one who's discouraged or sorrowing over the loss of a loved one or wondering what happens after death and be encouraged. Christ is coming back. And death is issued a final ultimatum, uh, which is death itself. Uh, and so death and hell are cast into eternal darkness uh, as Jesus prevails. So encourage one another with these words, he says. Uh, come alongside each other uh, and remind each other that the end is written. Um, we know how this story ends. Jesus gave us minimal descriptions at least of of what the end looks like and it's good news for those who believe in Jesus those who have decided listen I can't do this myself my life's a mess uh, I'll turn away from sin and I'm going to trust Christ um, if that's you then take heart have hope and encourage one another with these words that Jesus is coming again any thoughts on this paragraph First Thessalonians 4. 
Look at this one and then go right into chapter 5. We'll pick up there next time uh, because there's more about this topic. And in verse 11, that first paragraph of chapter 5 will also end with encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So we want to see what he adds to the language of coming in chapter 5 and try to glean from that as well. So... 1 Thessalonians 5, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews for some key exhortations regarding our relationships to one another. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Perhaps this morning, most of our conversations settled in Colossians 3, that your word to us, which is true and right, guiding, beneficial in every way, that that word must dwell in us. It must take root in us. It must occupy our minds and change the way we think. Um, So help us to to strive for that first, knowing that the byproduct of that will be that we'll have something to say to encourage others, uh, to help them down the road a little bit, to to speak truth that they can cling to. Uh, So make us people of the word, uh, and then make us people who are teaching and admonishing with the word. Perhaps even this week, we would be the recipients of truth. Someone would encourage us, would speak truth to us in our moment of need, and we'll stand on that. It'll, it'll help us be a, a better spouse. It'll help us be a better parent. We'll be reminded of patience or meekness or endurance. Um, we're just grateful that your word really is sufficient for us day in and day out uh, to get it right. Uh, And so thank you for your word and your spirit. Guide us by them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.